0: Today's sermon passage comes from Psalm chapter 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands.
1: Before we get into the text, I want to take a brief moment just to acknowledge um, some of the events of this past weekend. This Friday, when uh, when many of us were waking up uh, with the intention of celebrating Christmas, uh, along with our celebration, many of us were also made aware of uh, an event that was a great reminder of the fact that we still live in a very fallen world. Um, this, this event was a great tragedy. This was a, an event that caused a lot of loss for homeowners, for business owners. This was an event that yanked police officers and emergency rescue crews away from families, uh, away from loved ones to, to instead respond to, to such a tragic occurrence. And, and honestly, um, I went through a pretty wide range of emotions. I think like many people, um, 2020 ha- has been rough on us, man. 2020 has been a tough year. And, and I think for a lot of us, and, and I, I really am speaking for myself here, I was looking forward to Christmas as a way of setting aside some of the things that have occurred in 2020 and focusing wholly on the the love and and joy and hope that we find in Christ. And I'm angered and confused and frustrated and, and sad that somebody would use a day that should be focused on hope and love and they use that day instead to instill fear to, to bring out destruction. And I feel like I've been processing and the, these emotions and working through these emotions and trying to figure out, well, how do you reconcile the gospel message? How do you reconcile the coming of Christ with, with this harsh reality <laughs> of the world that we live in? And there's two things that I realized. First and foremost, we serve a God that's not bothered by us bringing these issues to him. When we are hurt, when we are wounded, when we're angry and mad and confused and sad, we serve a God that tells us that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. I'm grateful for the fact that we have a tradition throughout all of scripture of lament, of bringing these times to the Lord and to simply asking the Lord, how long? How long, Lord? When will you come? When will you redeem these situations, Lord? And then the other conclusion that I came to was this. I was angry because I felt like something had been robbed. I felt like this event was trying to rob hope and and joy out of the Christmas season. But here's what I I realized is that this event does not rob anything from Christmas, but what it does is, is it actually reinforces the joy that we find in the Christmas story. And this is what I mean by this. In Christmas, we we come together to celebrate the coming of a Savior. And what this world does is it reminds us that it is into this world that that Savior chose to come. Into a world full of suffering and hurt and hardship that the Savior looked down and said, I will go. I will go and I will redeem these people. So in a moment, we're going to pray. And what we're gonna pray is we're, we're just simply gonna take this situation to the Lord. We're gonna take the way that we're processing our feelings, our emotions, we're gonna take them to the Lord and, and ask him to help us work these things out, ask him to help us resolve them. But at the same time, we wanna pray for the people that have had to respond. We wanna pray for the people that have lost their homes, that have lost their businesses, their places of employment. We wanna pray for the, the fire and rescue teams for the police officers that have had to respond to such a dangerous situation. We want to pray for wisdom for the police, for the ATF, for the, for the FBI as they continue their investigation. And we want to pray for comfort and healing for the people of Nashville, for the people of Tennessee. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you And Lord, honestly, we we just don't have an answer for things like this, Lord, but I'm grateful that when we do not have an answer, you do have an answer. Lord, we do not know how to respond in, in situations like this, but Lord, I'm grateful for the fact that when we do not know how to respond, you know exactly what to do. Lord, our world around us seems so unstable, but Lord, you are constant, you are consistent. So Lord, I pray for those that have lost homes, that have lost, lost businesses, that have lost places of employment. Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would meet their needs, that you would give them peace, that you would give them comfort. Lord, I, I pray for the, the fire and rescue and police officers. Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you for a people that when danger is around, they run to it thank you for their wisdom and insight and, and recognizing the situation and their, their ability to inform people and, and bring them out. Lord, I, I thank you for using them, Lord, specifically to make a tragic situation less tragic than it could have been. And Lord, I want to pray right now for those investigating, for all of the law enforcement that are involved in the investigation. Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom that you would give them insight. Lord, I pray that you would give them resolve, that you would help them figure out what took place, that you would help them bring about justice. And Lord, I just pray for our community. I pray for Nashville, I pray for Tennessee. Lord, I pray for a people that have now endured a tornado, that have endured a pandemic, and now this great tragedy downtown. Lord, I just pray right now that in a time in which everything seems so unstable, Lord, I pray that you would be the rock. Lord, we bring these things to you when we have nowhere else to go, when we don't have anywhere to turn. We realize, Lord, that you are always present. So, Lord, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, uh, a couple weeks ago, when Jamie asked me to preach, um, I began to think through all of the texts of scripture that I would like to preach on, and I actually fell on Psalm 90. This is the Song of Moses. I wasn't asked to stay within the Exodus theme, but I wanted to stay within that narrative just so that we kind of keep some continuity between what we're studying in the book of Exodus and what we're going through today as well. Um, Thankfully, Jamie didn't actually give me the text. This was one of the first weeks that I got to choose, which if you've heard me preach before, the last couple of times I've preached, I've been giving texts that were a little bit less exciting (laughs) to, to have to deal with. All of, the, all of the texts in scripture are good, but some of them are more enjoyable to teach than others. Um, so I'm very grateful that we had this. And honestly, whenever I, I came to this text, I don't think I realized um, that, that this psalm in particular was going to really speak to a situation that we're currently living out and, and how strongly it was going to, to speak to our current situation. Um, but the title of the sermon is In Him We Dwell." Psalm 90 90 is oftentimes referred to as the Psalm of Moses. This is a song that Moses sings to the Lord. And the song kind of goes through three major steps. It goes through a period of recognizing the greatness of the Lord, the period of recognizing the frailty of man, and then a call for mercy, for God to have mercy on us. Now, before we kind of dig into the actual text of this psalm, uh, I, I want to approach a couple of things. One, when we deal with a psalm, We're dealing with a unique genre within Scripture. Now, all Scripture is the Word of God, but differing genres within Scripture function differently in the way that we interact with them. All right, and the Psalms in particular are kind of unique because most of the Bible, the Word of God, are words that are given to us to help us understand the history of how God has interacted with people, or their letters that have been written or, or wisdom that has been written to help us to understand how to live in God or to help us to understand what things are true and what we are to believe about God. Most of scripture, when we talk about the word of God, we think about a word that is coming from God to us. Well, the Psalms are unique in that they are a word that God has given us, but they're not a word that comes from God to us, they're a word from God that that is intended to go from us to him. The Psalms are Psalms that we sing to God or we sing about God. So it's kind of weird whenever you think about this, like what what a unique thing to have a word from God that is solely intended to be used for the purpose of communicating with him. And this is a great grace Simply because of the fact of this, we know that in our own limitations, in our own weakness, we know that we would never be able to conceive of the goodness and kindness of our our God. Within our own strength, we would never be able to fathom of how great God really is. So by grace, the Lord gave us the scripture he, he entered into our world and he gave us the word of God so that we could know him and know truth about him. And what I appreciate is, is that not only did God in his grace give us the word of God so that we could know him, but the Lord also gave us the word of God as a means of helping us learn how to express what we feel, what we believe back to him. And that's what the Psalms do for us. The Psalms give us the language to learn, to, to teach us so that we can learn how to express what's going on, to express truth back to God. And it's oftentimes, it's done in poetry and in song. Now, poetry and song, these are art forms. And art forms are, they're uniquely powerful in this. They have this ability to kind of break down and distill What's going on around us, and to communicate this in a powerful, pure form of language. I don't know if you guys have any songs that, when the moment that you begin to hear the song, you're immediately taken away, kind of taken to a different spot. I'm gonna go ahead and embarrassingly acknowledge that um, Taylor Swift, that's kind of like, I'll hear a couple of Taylor Swift songs, like back from her country days. And all of a sudden, like I'm taken to this whole new world. It's just crazy to me, like how powerful a song really can be. Like you hear this song and it just kind of lifts you up. And even more so, whenever we have a psalm that connects deeply with our emotions, when I'm going through hardship, whenever I'm going through difficulty, and, I, and people ask me, Well, how are you doing? I'm not lying when I say, hey, things are tough, but I'm doing okay, I'm doing just fine. I'm not lying when I say that, but for some reason that fails to communicate what's really going on. So whenever I hear the song, when peace like a river attendeth to my soul and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, that was taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's something in that song that powerfully carries me into a reality with God that you don't get in a lot of different texts. So when we enter into Psalms 90, here's what I want you to think. A lot of times when we read the Bible, when we read the histories, we read the histories in order for us to understand where we came from. It's where the faith community came from. When we read the epistles and the the letters that are written to us, there's a historical component to that, but the letters also give us a direction. It lets us know where we need to go. It tells us what we need to believe, all right? So we have a certain text that tells us where we're coming from. We have a certain text that kind of guides us into where we need to go, but what we have in the Psalms is we have a text that carries us along the way. We're meant to kind of be caught up in it. So that's what we're going to do as we read Psalms 90, is what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to get caught up in the psalm. Now, I'm going to be honest and tell you, this is hard. I don't know if you guys have ever had somebody tell you a joke and then try to explain the joke to you. And kind of in the moment of explaining the joke to you, it's not really a joke anymore. It's not funny Well, poetry is kind of like that. Whenever you read a poem or you read a song and then you have somebody try to explain the the song to you, it's almost as if the poetry has kind of lost its poetic power, (laughs) all right? And this is why oftentimes whenever uh, I listen to sermons on the psalms, sermons on the psalms may not be that great all the time because it's really hard to communicate what's taking place in a psalm. It's hard to really lead a people to kind of get carried away with that, and I want to go ahead and confess that the truth be told is is that today may not be a great sermon on the Psalms, but what we are going to do is we're going to dig into it. We're going to see what Moses is, what he's singing to the Lord, and then hopefully we'll find something that he's singing to the Lord that resonates with us and, and that carries us into his presence as well. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Psalm 90. Like I said, the the title of the sermon is, In Him We Dwell, and this comes from the very first point of the sermon, and that is this, when, when Moses is singing, the first thing that he sings is a song of God's greatness. So if you read in verse one and verses two, it says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So right off the bat, when Moses begins to sing to the Lord, this is what he does. He sings of the greatness of the Lord. He says, Lord, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are our dwelling place. Uh, Some of you may have a translation that actually translates that as you are our refuge. That is an accurate way of reflecting this. When when Moses is singing this, he's simply saying, Lord, we were in desperate need for a home. We were in desperate need for a safe place. Lord, you are our place of refuge. You are a dwelling place. Now, let's kind of think about this from the context of Moses. When Moses is singing this, You think about that. this is a man that is born in a land that's not his. He's raised by a family that's not his. He then becomes God's chosen man to lead God's people out of slavery into the desert, into the wanderings, and eventually into the promised land. And Moses' entire life, entire life, is caught up in this idea of I am a person without a place. And the hope that God had given to him was there is a place for my people, there is a promised land. And I'm gonna give a little bit of a spoiler alert to to this story. If you don't know the whole story of what takes place, this is kind of the tragedy. Moses never gets to the promised land. He gets to lead his people all the way to the door, all the way to the border. But Moses himself never gets to enter into into the promised land. And, And a lot of people believe that when he's writing this psalm, this song, he, he's writing this right at this stage where he's at the end of his life where he's reflecting on the fact that he doesn't actually get to enter into this and, and he sings to the Lord and this is what he sings, Lord, you are our dwelling place. Now here's another thing that's important is that Moses doesn't say I am. He's not singing a song about himself. Lord, you are my dwelling place. He's singing a song for all of the people of faith. Lord, you are our dwelling place. And he's not even singing specifically about the people of Israel that were, were led into the desert. He's singing for all of the generations. And the reason we know this is that he actually calls back to the creation account. Look at what he says, before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and, and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses is sitting down and he's saying, hey, look, from the beginning of time, we were a people in need of a place Adam and Eve, they had a place, and their place was in the garden. Their place was in the presence of the Lord. But in in sin, they were removed from their place. They were sent out to the wilderness, and here they were. They were a people in need of a place. And then all of a sudden, the world, it, it kind of falls further and further into corruption, and we realize that there is no place for God's people. There's really only one person that's seeking the Lord, so the Lord establishes the ark, and he gives God's people a place of refuge So we see God's people have a place, they have refuge, they have it in the ark, but the ark doesn't provide refuge forever. We have the flood narrative and the flood comes and goes and for a period, the ark was the refuge, but immediately thereafter, we realize that the ark wasn't enough. God's people continue to fall into sin. They continue to to be led into this place where they don't have a home, a secure place. And you have the story of Abraham that comes shortly thereafter, where Abraham calls Or God calls to Abraham and simply says, Abraham, I'm gonna take you away from your people and your land and I'm going to send you to a land. I'm gonna give you Canaan. And all of a sudden in the story, we're caught up in this idea of finally, maybe the people will have a place. God is taking them to the place. So they arrive at Canaan and they're in Canaan for a while, but it doesn't take long before famine sets in. And they realize the place that we thought we were going to make it isn't the place yet. It's not our refuge. It's not our dwelling place. So they're taken into Egypt looking for security. They get salvation in Egypt, but shortly thereafter, their salvation becomes their slavery. We pick up the story of Moses and just this, the people of God don't have a place, so God hears their cries and he pulls them out of Egypt and he leads them into the wandering and all of a sudden the people have been freed from slavery and they've give, been given the hope of a promised land and they realize this is our place, we're going to arrive at our place and, and this song is sung from Moses' perspective where he hits this point where he realizes, no, our place is not an ark, it's not a land, it's not even the garden, the place is God, our our dwelling is God our security is God our refuge is God and that's such an amazing place to sit down and think well how do you get to this point in your life where in all of the chaos and all of the instability and in all of the upturning of events of things going around around you how do you get to the place in your life where you sing to the Lord you God our our dwelling place well, you gotta ride the rest of the song. You gotta follow through and get carried away a little because this is where we wanna be. This is where all of us wanna be. We wanna dwell in the Lord. As the New Testament teaches us, we wanna abide in him. But before we get there, we have to understand the rest of the reality. So the second point is this. Moses starts off by singing of the greatness of God. He then moves on to sing a song of our frailty, a song of our weakness, Verse 3, it says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and it withers after singing the song of how great God is, Moses is forced to reflect on his own humanity. And this is the conclusion he comes to is he simply sings to the Lord, you are so great and Lord, we are so weak. The poet here actually uses what's called parallelism. It's repeating the same idea but in different words over and over again to reinforce what he's trying to say. He's just simply saying humanity is frail, we are weak, we're unable. But listen to the way that he says it, he doesn't just say we're frail, he says, Lord, you return us to dust. He doesn't just say that we're weak, he says a thousand years to God is like yesterday passed for us. He doesn't just say that we're unca- incapable, he says that our entire lives are kind of like a dream that has swept away in a flood. Our entire lives are kind of like grass. It pops up in the morning, but as soon as the hot sun comes upon it, it scorches and it withers away. And again, think about where Moses' condition is. He's wandering in the desert. He's already had a conversation with God through a burning bush. He's sat in front of Pharaoh and he's watched the power of God's hand act. In judgment on an entire nation, he stood in between an army and a great sea, and he watched God split it down the middle so that they could walk through on dry land. He's gone through a desert where there was no food and saw bread fall out of the sky and quail kind of come in at their feet. He struck a rock and had water pour forth. He is unbelievably aware of how powerful God is, and when one man is sitting in the middle of the desert seeing nothing but the power of God, he can't help but reflect on his own frailty, his own limitations, his own weakness. And that leads to the next part of this point is is that we're frail, but we're frail for a reason, and that is because we are sinful people. So he goes on and he says, In verse 7, for we were brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins are in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet the span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Now again, I like this because what Moses is doing in, in speaking of our weakness and our frailty, he's pushing us back into the encounter in the garden of, the garden of, uh, of Eden. He pushes us back to, to what takes place between God and Adam and Eve, so much so that he opens and closes this, this section right here with references to the curse that took place in the garden. Uh, he says right at the beginning. In verse 3 of this passage, it says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And then at the end, he says, well, look at our lives. Our lives are maybe 70 years or even by strength 80 years, yet the span of all of our lives is nothing but toil and trouble. And this is a direct call back to when, when sin came into the world with Adam and Eve and God begins to, to, to demonstrate to Adam and Eve what will be the end result of their sin, the curse that they'll live in. He says this, by the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you turn to the ground, for you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Moses is wrestling with this reality of we know that God is a good and safe place, but our lives are so short And they're so fragile. And the reason they are is simply this, is that we live in a cursed world. We live in a world in which our sin has caused so much pain and so much suffering that reality, we get 70 years, maybe 80 years if we have good strength, but of those 70 and 80 years, most of them are gonna be marked by hardship, by toil, by trouble, We live under God's wrath simply because of the fact that we were born into sin. Now, I want to be really careful because when we go from in the Old Testament, we begin to talk about God's wrath. There's a couple of errors that we can make. One thing that we can do is we can separate the God of the Old Testament from the New Testament. We can say, well, in the Old Testament, God was so angry, he was so full of wrath, but look at the God in the New Testament, I and mean, he's really loving, and he's really kind, and, and that's a mistake. We don't want to do that, because there is one God, and he's been the same. Moses says it from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And the reason why we struggle with this is because in our own lives, we have a hard time with, with creating a category in which anger and wrath and love and faithfulness can live together. When I'm angry at my children, I'm seldom loving. To learn how to be angry and not sin is something I need God to do in me. But God, he exists in that reality. So let me, let me point something out. Here it would be really easy for us to create this idea as if God is just simply up in heaven, observing everything that you do and taking note and waiting for the moment to just let you have it. It would be so easy to, to live in the fear of a, of a vengeful, wrathful God, and we have to acknowledge of the fact that we do, in fact, live under a curse. We live our lives under the wrath of God, but let's make sure that we keep that balance with the full reality of God, who, who God is. In this passage, there's one point where I wanna, I wanna watch the turn of how this takes place. It says, all of our sin sits before him, even our secret sin is in the light of his presence. That is a terrifying verse for me. Because if I, I look at my life and I, and I think about all of the sin that I've committed in my life, I honestly Do not like the idea of anybody knowing that. But God knows it all. It sits before him. And not only that, my secret sin, the sin that I want to keep in the dark, the sin that I want to keep hidden is not hidden from the Lord. It sits in the light of his presence. Whenever I think about the fact that God in heaven considers my sin, I have to also remember that when he considers my sin, he is also considering me. So when God brought about a curse in response to our unfaithfulness, to our sin, we also have to realize that along with that curse came a plan of salvation. And this balance between the two, between condemnation and salvation are shown very well in John 3. Everybody knows this verse, let's read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the God I could get behind. The, the, the God of salvation, The God that's not gonna let me perish, he says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the God I can get behind. This is the God that is not a God of condemnation, but this is the God of salvation. But look at the following verse, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God. When Jesus comes in the world and he says, I don't come to condemn, it's not God saying, oh, I'm not really concerned about your sin. God is coming to the world and saying, I'm not coming to condemn you because you're already condemned. I'm not coming to a good people to help make them better. I'm coming to a dead people to help make them alive. So when Moses starts off the song by by being able to say God is our dwelling place, he is our refuge, he's able to sing that simply because of the fact that he knows his own weakness, he knows his own frailty, he knows the sin that he lives in, but he also realizes that in all of that, God has a plan. He has a plan to bring us into his dwelling place. And that's why when he concludes the psalm, he concludes it with a song of mercy, a song for mercy, So he says this. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. This is verse nine. Oh, actually, let's go to verse 12. It says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all of our days. Make us glad, For as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. See, Moses is bringing this song full circle. God is great, we are weak, but he cries out at the end for mercy. And one of the things that he cries out for is that the Lord would establish us. So he uses that word twice, establish the work of our hands, Lord, establish the work of our hands. And this is so interesting because this is is playing off. Lord, we don't have the ability to do anything. What we're asking is that, Lord, you establish us. Our works are so insignificant. We have no ability to remove the curse, we have no ability to lengthen our days, we have no ability within ourselves to remove the trouble and the tor- torment and the hardship, but Lord, all we simply have is the ability to cry out to you and say, Lord, in your mercy, please establish us. And the other thing we have is to ask for wisdom. It says this, give us a heart of wisdom Return, O oh Lord, how long? Have pity on us. And he says this, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. How do we live in a world full of tension like the world that we live in? Well, we live in it by being satisfied in the love of Christ. And that satisfaction is not something we can do on our own. It's something that God has to do for us. He has to satisfy us. I'm gonna make a point and I'm gonna bridge it to the gospel. This is how we wanna conclude Moses is well aware of the fact that he struggles to live a life that is still in a land that's full of sin, but is in sight of the promised land. All right, and in that tension, as he's kind of reconciling these two worlds, well, how do I live in hope, but in the reality of the current world that I live in, he comes to the conclusion of, Lord, I have nothing to offer. You and you alone have to be the one to do these things for me. Now, I wanna be clear Man has some incredible abilities. The Lord created us to be creative. He created us to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it. But in all of our strength, at best, we have the ability to minimize the felt effects of the curse in the world. We do not have the ability to remove that curse. If you think about all the works of man and what it's done for us. Think about air conditioning, When it's so miserably hot outside, God gave us the ability to create something that cooled us off. We could could remove the felt effects of the curse for a period of time. We have bushwhackers, (laughs) we have weed eaters, so that when we go out and we realize that our fields are full of thorns and thistles, we have machines that have been created that can can remove some of the felt effects of that. We can spend our money on so many things that can make our lives feel a lot more comfortable than they would, have rather, they, they would have been elsewise. But here's the thing is that there is nothing that we're able to do in our power that can remove the curse. All we can do is remove the felt effects of it Temporarily. And what Moses is calling to is, is recognize, hey, you guys, you might be able to make your life a comfortable to a degree, but here's what I'm offering you, is I'm offering you a dwelling place in the Lord. And that only comes when we sit back and we learn to be fully satisfied in who he is. Now, let's bridge this to the gospel, because in the same way that Moses kind of lived in this odd tension between living in a cursed land but having, having hope of the promised land in sight, we live in that same tension. We live in a very similar tension. Now, the beauty of our story is this, is that when we reflect on our sin and we reflect on the curse that has come in the world, we have the ability to sit back and reflect on our sin through the lens of Jesus Christ. Are we sinful? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do we fear the Lord? Absolutely. Do we fear the wrath and condemnation? No, because in Christ there is no condemnation. Are we still weak? Absolutely. Do we still hurt and suffer? Absolutely. But do we have hope? Absolutely, because if we believe in Christ, we're sealed with the Spirit. We are guaranteed our inheritance. But here's the thing, as we live in this world in which we're, we're caught between the gift that we've gotten in Christ, we've received in Christ, but the reality that the kingdom has not yet been established. So how do we celebrate Christmas in a weekend where such an awful event occurs? Well, this is how we celebrate. We learn to be satisfied in the consistency and faithfulness of our Lord. Now, this psalm is specifically written to believers. It's it's written to the faith community. It's written to the people of faith so that they would have a way of singing to the Lord during a time when they were asking the Lord, help us understand how do we live in this world and still follow you. But here's the other thing I want to keep in mind is that there's, there, there's always the opportunity, there's always the chance that somebody in this room is not a part of the faith community. Maybe there's a chance that you've just not put your trust in Christ, that you've not said, Lord, I can't do this on my, my own, that I, I need you. And here's what I want you to understand. God's offering of a dwelling place is available to everyone. To anyone that believes in the name of Jesus Christ, confesses their sin, their salvation For any person that sits down and says, this life is too heavy, it's too burdensome, I don't know what to do, Jesus says plainly, if you just come to me and ask me, then I will take your burden and I'll give you mine. (laughs) I'll carry yours for you. You live your life and you realize that no matter what I buy, no matter what I do, no matter how much I work, I can't create security. What God is offering you is a place of refuge and that refuge is him.